This will make sense soon. You're just so hungry. Part 1 Hello and welcome to You Are Not Alone. You Are Not Alone is a 1v1 horror actual play podcast. I'm Blaine, your host and RPG-loving friend. If you're a fan of the podcast, I have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash Martin. There are a number of costs associated with running a podcast, and any support, even a dollar a month, goes a long way towards covering them. If you aren't in a position to help out financially, rating and reviewing the show on any podcatcher that allows it helps us to find new listeners. If you recommend us to your game-loving friends, it would mean the world to me. As many of you know, we are in the midst of This Will Make Sense Soon, an ongoing series that is leading up to an extended game of the Yellow King RPG. We've been playing a few different games, building out a world inspired by the weird horrors of Robert W. Chambers. We started with a game of Trophy, featuring Rev from The Crit Show, and followed that up with a game of The Quiet Year, featuring Chris Zumsky who will be playing the Yellow King with me when we arrive at that point. This week, we're playing Fear Itself. Fear Itself is a game written by Robin D. Laws and published by Pelgrane Press. It is a game of modern horror using the gumshoe system. Gumshoe is a system designed especially for detective games. It uses two different sets of skills, investigative and general. Investigative skills are the skills that help your characters find clues and never require a role. This helps avoid that pesky scene where everyone rolls terribly and all of the clues you had hidden away go unfound, stalling out your game. You tell the GM what investigative skill you want to try and use, and if they think that it would unearth a clue, then that clue is unearthed. General skills, on the other hand, cover all of the other stuff that your character can do. Each skill has a pool of points that you've assigned during character creation, and you spend those points to add to your dice roll, helping you succeed at fighting, running away, or using some mysterious power that your character has. It's a really great system for games that require detective work, and I highly recommend checking out one of the many, many games that use this system. So with all that introductory stuff out of the way, let's jump into Fear Itself. So this week, I'm bringing back an old friend and first guest of the show, You will recognize his dulcet tones from chapter one of You Are Not Alone, where we played Ten Candles. I'm here with Sean. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Hi, Blaine. Happy to be here. I'm always happy to have you, friend. Hey, thanks for bringing me back. Very exciting to have pulled you into this weird little game or story we're telling uh, through various games and using the Yellow King RPG to kind of create the central storyline. Uh, it's going to be weird, but I'm really excited to have you along for this ride. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you inviting me back is, um, uh, it's, it's an honor. So thank you. Um, I haven't played this kind of game before, this kind of uh, resource management kind of style of game. So I'm excited to uh, bite this off and yeah, see how, see how this works. Yeah, it's a, it's the coolest system and it's super simple. Like I, when we, when we were first talking about it, uh, I literally explained the entire game to you over a smoke break. Yeah, it doesn't seem hard. I like the there's almost a strategic element to it because you have to decide how many of your resources you're going to do within the context of you know the role playing and story. So you know it's um, it's very simple yet strategic. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You definitely have to think hard about like, all right, is this role something that I care desperately about? succeeding and if it isn't then do i spend any points at all do i spend one or two uh so you can save it up for those roles where you're like all right i need to make sure that this is going to be a success so i'm going to drop four or five or six points on this single roll right excellent so let's start out tell us a little bit about your character okay well my character's name is william james waugh and he is a fledgling inventor. Um, he has a young family, wife and young family, that he's trying to support with his 
new invention. And in this time period that we're going to be in, electricity is really coming into vogue, and he's trying to get onto that bandwagon. So I'm trying to find the next great invention. He, think he, he thinks he has something. So I don't know if we want to go into that or anything yet. but No, um, I think that's a good – we'll reveal yeah. that as we – But um, put it this way, he he's invested so much into this, if it fails, it might ruin him and his family. So uh, it's so pretty important got- to him. He's got a lot riding on this uh, this invention. Yeah. So let me ask, what is your wife's name? I want to say her name is Sherry. 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 How did? Sorry, was it William? William James Waugh. William James Waugh. Waugh spelled R O Y. So how did William and Sherry meet? Hmm. Well. I think that it was a very quick, quick thing, quick, kind of quick fling. And um, I think we were married pretty quickly because Cherie was with child. So, oh. so we kind of had to get, get married really quick. And now we have our, our little girl. So, and what is your, what is your girl's name? Coronet. Too weird of a name. Yeah. Coronet. A lovely little name. What is Cora? Cora for short. Cora. What is Cora's favorite toy? Well, she's at the age right now where she has her her one little doll that she has. It's like a. It's not like a porcelain doll or anything like that. It's almost like a little wooden. It's like a little wooden doll. Okay. Almost with like two dresses for it. So she has like the fancy dress and then like regular going out dress. dress in the home dress yeah so like the one that you know it's in all the time when she plays with and one that's just special so does the doll have a name I'm just throwing all of these give me give me all of the names right out of the gate yeah thanks i think i think she just calls it uh baby baby yeah it's little baby or whatever yeah she's not really that she's not really old enough to point where she's putting Full names on things. She's, okay. you know, I think very uh, descriptive well, I, names. I, I imagine, I imagine, uh, Cora as like, like, like four, like okay. four-ish, you know, she's just kind of coming into imaginative play and that kind of thing. Well, it's March 31st, 1889 and Paris is a buzz. I suppose that was a pun. The Eiffel Tower, this grand project that the officials of Paris have been talking about for years, have been working on for years, is finally done. And it's finally ready to be opened to the public. And there is a grand event There have been many grand events. I imagine this has been probably a few weeks of special dinners and meetings where the architects have told stories about the building of this, just this, this wonderful celebration of the momentous creation that human hands have wrought. But this night, the night that it is being opened to the public, later in the evening, the one single large light bulb at the top of the Eiffel Tower will be lit so that all of Paris can see this grand accomplishment. But before the lighting, there's a fair set all about the base of the Eiffel Tower where scientists of all ilk have come to present projects that they think will be beneficial to the future of the Eiffel Tower. And that's where we find William James Waugh in a booth, in a row of booths, in this massive festival with various dignitaries and officials and diplomats and architects and builders and designers milling about seeing 
what might make the Eiffel Tower even more grand? Sean, tell me about William's booth. What is, how does it, how, how is it set up? What does it look like? Um, I imagine it as kind of a small wooden booth with kind of a soapbox style, like little platform in front of it where I can stand and kind of present uh, things almost like Barker, like kind of Barker out yeah. uh, to, the, to the crowd and, you know, try to get them interested in my invention and, and try to kind of barker them into my booth and have them take a look at, at what I have to offer. So I think there's like kind of a presentation table out front and then there's like a kind of curtained area in the back where I can sit or where I have my supplies that I need for my my invention. Perfect. All right. So there are various, again, various people of all kind of social structures. Some people, like some of the more common folk of Paris, have come just to see these grand things. And then there are, you know, the Carnegies and the various people of power milling about to find not just things like, I, I, I feel like probably American businessmen have come, English businessmen have come, people have come to see things that are being presented primarily for the Eiffel Tower, but could be applied elsewhere because a lot of this technology is in vogue all around the world. And so there are, you know, powerful American families there to almost imagine it as a, like a futurists, like convention, not a convention, but like, you know, modern things like this is the future. Like we're going to show you what the future is. Like we're bringing you into the modern age, whatever that is you know, maybe primarily around electricity and lighting the the tower. But there's also more people about like, you know, come, you know, this product is going to take us into the next age. This is going to be revolutionary, like that kind of that kind of thing as well. So it's just kind of a presentation of, of yeah. how modern the city is and and how it can be more modern and, and giving you those tools to do that, I guess. Yeah. Interesting, this map I found is a map that was handed out at the 1889 Exposition Universelle, held during the year that marked the 100th anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. The main symbol of the expo is the Eiffel Tower, which served as the entrance to the fair. That sounds great. And then, like, you know, everyone could be kind of behind it for the lighting ceremony. And, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so there are various people coming about to see your presentation. And so there's a small, a small group that has gathered. This is probably your 15th or 16th time doing your, your spiel, but they have gathered to see what you have to offer. What do you offer them? Step right up, step right up and see, come see the modernization. See the demo of Waz automatic Quicksilver applicator. The applicator creates mercury in a gas form that can be put in a light coating directly onto any metal to make it a superconductor of electricity. Use it for any of your parts that you need to be a superconductor in your machines, large areas, small. It works for them all. One of the men standing in front of your your booth is a tall, I don't want to say sketchy looking, but he's kind of sketchy looking. Doesn't look as refined as some of the others. He looks like he's trying to look refined. How how is his coat different than the other other men's coats? There are some areas on his coat that are worn so thin that you can see the shirt below, and so it's kind of. In a, in a situation like this where most people are taking quick glances, you w- would not necessarily look twice. His, his, his suit looks nice when you just glance over it briefly. He has a very uh, The one thing that is immaculate is his bow tie. He has an immaculate bow tie, a kind of stovetop hat, almost Abe Lincoln-y in his attire. But when you actually look at him, you realize, like, even though the bow tie is immaculate, it's not necessarily tied properly. 
it's a little askew. And again, there are these worn places on the suit coat down near his shoes. His shoes are a little bit more scuffed than the others. In the back of his pant leg is a little tattered. Like it wasn't properly fitted. And like sometimes it falls below the heel of his shoe. And over time it has begun to wear it away. But he says, as he smiles and his teeth are a little bit yellow, he says, well, certainly if that is, if this machine does as you claim, that is revolutionary. Can I see it work? Yes, please. It's so easy. Anyone can use it. Here, try it out. I have this piece of metal here that you can use the applicator on. Go ahead, sir. Give it a try. He kind of rubs his fingers together for a moment and then cracks his knuckles and reaches out and takes it. And he points it at the sheet of metal and he pulls the trigger. What what happens when he pulls the trigger? What does it look like? It's this very fine mist of cloud and it creates a very high luster. It's basically like a mercury gas, almost. Okay. Like, forcing mercury into, like, a gas state, almost, is what I imagine it to be. And almost kind of creates a mercury powder coating on, you know, on whatever it is. So, it's almost like painting on mercury, I guess, but in a solid state that it's not going to, like, just run everywhere like mercury does. Excellent. How quickly does it dry? Um, I think it's fairly quickly because it's such a thin coat, but it's probably going to still take a couple minutes yeah, to... It's, yeah, it's going to be like, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes or so. All right. So he sprays it down, and he smiles this kind of unnerving smile. And he reaches out, and he runs his finger down the sheet of metal. And there's this squeaking as his skin moves down the metal sheet. And then there's just this one line in the perfect coating of mercury that has been applied and I'll, I'll walk over and I'll say, oh, um, oh, we need to get that off your fingers. That's uh, that's not going to be. Uh... Oh, um, yes. Well, I have this other piece here. Now, that will be drying in about uh, 15 uh, to 20 minutes. Uh, but as you can see, this one here for a prior demo, this is what it will look like. And let me show you how it is now a superconductor. And I like. You know, put it in some kind of device that shows that between a wire and you know the light bulb that now there it lights up the bulb. He looks at it and he says, That is fascinating. Yes, we are taking custom orders. Uh, they have to be custom made by me and I can do that. I'll need your information to be able to do that. And we can even take a deposit right here for you to be able to get that uh, process started. Just Two francs enough to uh, is enough to to get me started on a down payment, and uh, you can pay the rest upon delivery. Fantastic! Two francs, you say? Two francs for a deposit? Yes. He produces two francs, and he says, "My name is Henri Benoit. I will look forward to receiving your shipment." Yes, I will contact you by post when. I have it finished, and we can have the uh, final payment arranged. The full amount will be 30 francs. Fantastic. Then it's a deal, sir. I reach out my hand to to shake his hand, and then I realize he has the mercury on his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I um, I just take my, like, my other hand and kind of grab his wrists opposite, I guess. I'm trying to almost just stopping his hand before it gets to mine. Okay. I just kind of like shake it in that way, like indicating with my eyes, like, Oh, I don't want to get that on me. I'm presenting. And all yeah. That stuff. As you make contact with him, you're somewhere else. It's cold and it's musty. You think basement, maybe, And you look around, and 
and there's too much darkness around you to see where you are, but basement. And then there's a glint off in the darkness to your left. And you don't know if you want to go that direction or not. It feels like something is wrong in that direction. But you go anyway. You're not in total control. And you walk into the darkness. And you think for a moment that you found a mirror. Because you're looking at yourself. You see your face. And then you realize that it's not a mirror. It's something encased fully in mercury. It is the statue of pure mercury. And it is so glossy that it is reflecting your face back. And once you realize that and you kind of focus in on, on what the thing is and not what it's reflecting back, you realize that this looks an awful lot like Cora. You think it might be Cora, and as you're trying to shake that thought away, no, this could not be Cora. This is not Cora. You look down and you see clutched in one of her hands is Bebe. And you know that this is Cora. And then you're back and you're looking at that man with his slightly off smile and his sort of patchy beard. His teeth are a little bit yellow and there's the smell of stale tobacco. And you think absinthe maybe on his breath. And he says, Mr. Y, I'm, I'm quite excited to receive your post. Yes. Um, thank, thank you for your order. Uh, we'll be hearing from me as, as soon as I have it, have it ready. Excellent. You have a wonderful day, sir. Enjoy the lighting of the Eiffel Tower. Many of us have worked very hard to make this day a reality. Yes. Uh, it will be a, uh, a large step forward for the modern man. And he wanders off into the dusk of the evening. You are feeling your stomach is feeling odd. It might be that you haven't eaten in a while. It might be the nerves. It might be the premonition you just had. It might have been the stale cigarette smoke and absinthe of Henri Benoit's breath. But it's definitely, it's churning a bit. Now, is this something that I've experienced before? Like, is this the first time something like this has have you, happened to me? I mean, that's a that's a question for you. I'm going to turn it around on you. Have you had okay. premonitions before? I mean, I think it's safe to say you probably have not had a premonition quite this rattling before. So I take a minute to really just process what just happened. I I've had feelings before that have come to me in maybe one sense or another. Uh, I've smelled smoke before a fire. I've had an uncanny ability to maybe hear a, a scream or a cry out before it happens. These things have happened to me before, but not in such a vivid sense where I've literally left, saw, and understood. I, and usually hasn't ever involved anyone that I've loved or have known. So this is jolting to me. 
And I think I'd go back inside my booth and kind of draw the curtain and just kind of take a minute to process what I've felt. And I feel like since I've made contact with this person, Mr. Benoit, that I feel like he has to have something to do with what I have. And I don't know fully what it means, but but I feel like I feel like I need to to check on on my family a little bit. So I, I I have that kind of in the back of my mind. And I think I call over like kind of one of the, the newspaper runner boys okay. that are around. You know, they're just kind of they're around, they're kind of getting things for people and extra, and kind of extra, things. read all about it. Yeah, the selling programs and that kind of thing for the for the event. And, yeah, they have and, free maps that they're handing out yeah. that show people where to go. They have souvenir programs they have local newspapers yeah so uh, i think i just want to flag down one of those guys and just kind of give them you know uh, a few coins to ask them to go and check in with my family at the you know at their the address system to do that and to come back to me i think i even instead of saying like check in with them i I give them some kind of token or something and say to go with them and, and let me know. Okay. You know, to, uh, for, for Cora herself. So, like, uh, something that I've purchased maybe there. And so, to almost give that little present. So, yeah. Excellent. So, the, the newspaper boy takes your, your token. Yeah. Um, and he says, you, you look real rough, mister. I have loose cigarettes if you want a cigarette. It's one bit. Uh, sure, boy. He gives you a, uh, a cigarette and then runs off. Okay. Um, maybe it is like one of the programs from the... Yeah, so I, I tell him to, here, take this program to to Cora at this address and come back and let me know that you've placed it into her hands. All right. He runs off. And there's a Frank unit for you. What? Okay, so then I just... What do you do then? So then I just, I just sit and I take a minute to kind of think about this. As I have already. And then I realize time's wasting and there's people out there and I need, I just made a sale. I need to make another sale. So I just kind of go back and start into the barkering routine again and go through it, keep presenting until, um, I think I do this really until there's no more actual light left. You know, once it starts to get dark, pretty dark, at which point people begin to, gather around. They have, like, various food stalls and stuff, so people are getting food and drinks and preparing for the lighting of the tower. And it's been a little while since you set off the newspaper boy, and it feels like it's... It shouldn't have taken him this long. Like, you live relatively far away from this area, so it it should have taken him maybe an hour get there to get back it's been like 90 minutes and then it's been two hours and that's when it kind of starts to get dark and the folks start to leave the expo area and he still hasn't come back I I think if it's starting to get dark and and he hasn't come back yet I think I'm gonna I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna go back on my own to make sure that they're safe because I'm really worried about this. All right. So you run off and you get to the edge of kind of the expo area. And that's when you see him, that newspaper boy. And we're going to say he's probably about 14 or 15 years old. And it looks like he's been distracted by a girl of about the same age. And they're just sort of off to the side and he is flirting with her. Okay, I will um I will go up to him and and say and ask him does he, does he have the thing that I've given him that I gave him? Is he holding that? He is not. Okay. So I come up to him and say "Boy, where have you been?" Oh, hey, mister. Uh, sorry. I was actually just I was just uh 
on my way back uh, back to your booth when I saw my, my co- cousin, Susie. Well, what of it? Have you placed... Have you done what I've asked you to do? Have you placed my token in the hands of my my daughter? I did. I did. I gave it right to Cora, and she seemed she seemed thrilled to get it. She started looking through it right away. Oh, I see. Okay. I appreciate that. Here's your payment. And I toss him the franc, and I say, watch it, boy. That's a good way to get married. Takes it, he puts it in his pocket, and he goes right back to talking to this, this, his cousin, cousin, quote unquote, right, and turn and go back. Okay, so you go back to your booth, and you realize immediately when you get back, you had forgotten to bring your automatic Quicksilver applicator with you, and it's not at the booth. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm panicking. I'm. Yeah, it's it's just not there. There's nowhere to like hide it. Like there's yeah, a tiny look, little booth. And you think like, oh, maybe like because I knew I was leaving, I put it like in the in the box that I've been keeping some money in. Right. The money is still all there, and you check every inch of that booth, mm. and the Quicksilver applicator is not there. Hmm. Okay, well, I I wanna I wanna start talking to the 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 side the vendors that are beside me and and the booths that are beside me if they saw anyone come into the booth while I was gone or was around here or was looking around. I wanna immediately go to the other people that are in the adjacent booths and start asking them questions about was anyone here while I was gone? Did you see anyone? Was anyone here? Do I have to use an investigative skill for that? Yeah, so when you're interpersonal skills. So you, you go across kind of the the lane of, because there's on both sides of the this lane, there are booths. And there is uh, a woman that you've, you've come to know as Jeanette. What is, what, let me ask you, what is, what is the thing that Jeanette is pitching? Or has been pitching today at the fair. I want to say Jeanette has like kind of jewelry that is like commemorative towards the Eiffel Tower. She's like a very you know pendant with the Eiffel Tower earrings that like have a small model of the Eiffel Tower. Um, maybe even like small electric lights. Like you know what I mean? They don't actually like work or anything, but they're just like they models just, of them. Like, yeah, so they're very, very bright. Yeah, like brightly colored light bulbs. Uh, so she says, oh, hello, William. Uh, what, what, how did, how did your day go? Oh, Jeanette, have you, have you seen, I'm, have you seen anyone at my booth while I was gone just in the last, uh, you know, 30 minutes or so? She kind of, she's like, I've been, I've been cleaning up. I'm, I've seen a few janitors. Janitors, uh, are sweeping, sweeping the. Do you see them uh, here? Like anyone that you you notice? Is anyone? She motions kind of down the lane. She's like, I believe that gentleman. She points to a man with a broom that's kind of sweeping up the the lane. Okay, I will try to go down to him and ask him about if anyone was around or if he was around and saw anyone. He tells you, what do you say to him? Because I'll come up to him, and I, I mean, he's obviously not holding my. My device, right? So, yeah. if he's not holding my device, then I'll come to him and I'll say, uh, "Sir, um, have uh, were you were you cleaning uh, by the booths up up there uh, just a few minutes ago at all? What, did you happen to be cleaning up that way? Yes. Oh, ha- did you see anyone go by uh, the 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 Quicksilver applicator booth while you were up there? Was was anyone around? Uh, I feel like I've been robbed. So what skill do you want to try to use? I think I'm going to use my interrogation skill. Okay. So he looks a little bit a little bit frazzled as you're kind of aggressively questioning him and he's like I I uh I I, I was cleaning down there um I I I did not clean on your side of the lane but surely you must have seen something. Uh, I believe 
Gustav was was Gustav. Tell me what Gustav looks like. He describes Gustav as a fairly plain man in his mid forties. He's got kind of dark brown hair, clean shaven. And do I get a sense from my interrogation of him? Like, what am I? You said he was like kind of nervous, jumpy before. Is it with Gustav the same way? Am I getting that same feeling with my interrogation? No, I mean, he calms down a little bit. The, the jumpiness you think came from the, like, you're using interrogation, which means you're being a little bit more aggressive. Right. And that seemed to rattle him. Not necessarily that you don't get the feeling that he's lying or anything. You just feel like he's a little bit rattled because you've been um, aggressive with him. Okay. I was taking that as he was um, he was being nervous because he was being interrogated. Because he had something to hide. Yeah, this so, is more. Okay, you think it's more due to gotcha. the way you approached him. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Because uh, I fear I've been robbed. I need as much information as I as I can. Well, that is uh, that's certainly a serious accusation. You could. I don't know if Gustav is still out cleaning, but oh, he's a fellow a fellow custodian. Yes, he was the one cleaning your side of the lane. And he kind of motions down, like, back the way you came and further down. He's like, there's a a tent set up at the end of the lane with cleaning supplies. You could certainly, if he's not there now, he will return there at some point. Thank you. You've been a great help, and I will try to go locate Gustav. All right. You you head down the lane, and there are booths on both sides. Pretty much most people are packing it up at this point. There is... So starting going down, there is one booth... Where the people are, the, the the people there are selling what they are calling high efficiency light bulbs, and they have actually not started winding down because their lit, their booth is lit up bright as the day with all of these light bulbs, mm-hmm. and it is just glowing. And they, there's less of a crowd now. Mostly, like I said, most of the people are kind of filing out of the expo area and heading towards uh, where they're serving food and alcohol and. So assuming I'm coming back by my, yes, my booth, when I get back by my booth, I want to grab a lantern out of there because it's okay. starting to get dark and, you know, walk with my lantern and go down through and try to find Gustav. All right. So you go down to the end of the expo lane and there is, there's this tent that's kind of fully closed off, but there's some flaps to get in and it's marked like staff only. Okay. I will um, pull back the, the tent flap and try to peek in to see if anybody's inside. Okay. You see a couple people. There are, like, tables covered in various cleaning supplies. There are big bins for them to, like, mm-hmm. for street sweepers to dump the trash after they've... Right. So I will ask him. I'm looking for a man named Gustav. Is he here? One of the one of the folks in the tent looks at you and says, he's not, he's still out cleaning. Hmm. Okay. And then I will thank you back out and I'll try to kind of walk around the street a little bit, not too far away from the tent, so okay. that I know that if he does come back, I can find him. Okay. You uh, you stick around. How long are you going to stick around? Well, I'm going to try to walk a little bit, like kind of in a radius around it okay. almost, you know, just see if I can catch him, so you but start not doing, too far away that I won't miss him coming back. Yeah. You start doing kind of laps and no one matching the description of Gustav mm-hmm. comes back. Okay. It's now probably about a half an hour away from the lighting ceremony. Okay. Do I have plans to meet my family there? I would I would think so. I, I would imagine. This there. seems like a big enough event that your family would come and this would be something you would all yeah, watch. Yeah, so I think I'm going to kind of abandon that and I will go to the lighting ceremony and try to meet up with Cherie and Cora. So I'll make my way over to that part of the town. Okay. So yeah, you got you created a, a place that you would meet after the expo, and you go and they're there. And Cora is very happily in one hand she has Bebe, and Bebe is wearing her special dress, and in the other hand she's clutching the the program program that, that, that was you sent, sent to her. She says "Papa," and she runs up and she like throws her arms around. Wow. Oh, yeah, I drop down to one knee and just like you know fully embrace her and just almost have some tears in my eyes when I come back a little bit and look at her face. She she squeals and hugs you tight and uh, Cherie comes over and gives you a kiss on the cheek and she says, 
this is truly a monumental day for all of Paris. And I, I don't necessarily respond. It's almost like kind of an absent-mindedness a little bit. And I, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm still, you know, kind of, it, something's wrong. Yeah. You know, almost as she can she, maybe pick that up. She rubs your back. What, do, what is her, like, pet name for you? Maybe just my lovely. Okay. I think that's fine enough. She rubs your back and she says, is everything all right, my lovely? We'll speak of it later, but. Yes, I'm afraid that something something might have happened. But we'll talk about it after the ceremony. Let's let's enjoy this. It's never gonna happen again in our lives. So you you post up and there's uh the the Paris Orchestra has set up and they're playing, you know, all sorts of French pride songs. And the moment comes and there's this drum roll and there's this almost palpable sense of pride in the air. And then suddenly there's a, at first just a flicker as the light bulb on the top of the Eiffel Tower is turned on. And there's this moment where everyone simultaneously is afraid that it won't turn on. And then it crackles to life, and this glowing beacon sits upon this monumental thing that the French people have created. And there are applause from all around. Fireworks are set off. There is just this kind of monumental cheering from all around. And you are distracted for a moment as you realize from maybe half a block down, you see Henri Benoit, the unsettling man who triggered your premonition. And he is staring at you. Just staring. And when he notices you notice him, he gives you this kind of crooked half smile. And he tips his hat and disappears into the crowd. I think it somewhat dawns on me that why didn't I think of this before? This could be the someone who has done this. And I think I just without telling anyone, kind of break off from uh, Cherie and Cora and try to go into the crowd and try to chase after him. Like try to, you know, kind of cut through the crowd during this, like, celebration moment where everyone's kind of in uproar. Yeah. So you break off and go to try and find Henri. Now it's three months later. And you still have not found your Quicksilver applicator. You have not found Henri Benoit. You have not found Gustav the janitor. Neither of them seem to have even existed. You have searched for them and searched for them and found no purchase in your search. What have you been doing other than searching for them? Anything? Or has this become your sole occupation? Well, it's taken me three months to create the first prototype of, of my invention. So I've been trying to work feverishly to create another one. And so that's mostly what I've been trying to do because I got some other orders And so I I need to kind of fulfill those while still trying to have one in stock. So, and I needed that to be able to copy off of a little bit. So like, cause I've been tweaking it and everything else. And so doing it again from scratch is a little bit longer than what it would have been. 
with your search for the original thrown in, I think that you're probably close to finishing this new one, but you still have. Well, the other thing too is that I like the the, the quicksilver substance that is loaded into the device was also taken as well. So I've kind of had to procure more of that as well. So it's I'm really without funds. I'm really going the wrong way to try yeah. to fill fulfill these orders. All right. So it is one night, three months after your applicator went missing. I think in these three months, you've probably grown distant from your family. You pour so much into the invention, so much into the search, that you have so little time for them. And that is obvious in the way that we see you and Cherie in bed, and Cherie has kind of turned her back to you, and there is distance between the two of you in the bed. You are asleep. And then you're somewhere else entirely. You are in an alley. Somewhere you know this is Paris. It feels like Paris, but you do not know this specific alley. And you're hungry. You don't know what for, but you feel this emptiness in the pit of your stomach. And you know that you're hungry. You also know that you're not William Waugh anymore. You are someone else. You don't know who, but someone else. And you are hungry. And you are moving down this alleyway. And you see... That newspaper boy, that newspaper boy, and for a moment you're like, that's the newspaper boy that I paid to take something to Cora. But when you think that, the I doesn't feel right because you're not William Y anymore, you're someone else. But this is the newspaper boy that William Waugh paid to take oh something what what was it something to someone was it was it his daughter? You don't know, you're just so hungry and that newspaper boy is there. And then there's a fine silver mist that spreads through the air and suddenly the newspaper boy falls still as he is coated in this silver mist and becomes a quick silver statue and then you're awake and you're William Waugh again, and you know that that is the newspaper boy that you paid to bring that pamphlet to Cora on the day that your applicator was stolen. And you know that he's dead. What do you do? I imagine it's in the middle of the night, and I sit up and now there's slight glow about things with the new electric and flickering gas lamps that are around as well in the night and just coming through the window. And I try to remember where this was in my premonition. What alley do I recognize it? And I think I look over back at Cherie to see if she's still asleep. And she's there and she's just lightly breathing in and out. And I feel like I want to go check on Cora as well. So I slip out as quietly as I can and I try to open the door to her room and 
see if she's asleep as well and I'm sleeping. Cora is in her bed. She's asleep. She's got Bebe in her arms. And somewhere in the past weeks, you don't know when, you don't, you've never seen this before, but Bebe has a new outfit. And it's an outfit that's designed to look just like the clothes you wear. Bebe is dressed like you. And Cora is clinging to it in her sleep. I think that I can't begin to bring myself to go back to sleep. And I gently shut the door, put on my overcoat, and start to walk towards my uh, laboratory space. Okay. Um, you head down, studio. head down to your laboratory space. One of the things I think I want to do with premonition when you get these kind of free premonitions, if you want, you can attempt to use some of your investigative skills to kind of like fall back into your memory and remember those things and look for clues there. Okay, so maybe on the way there, I try to search my memory of what has happened. Okay. We can try to do that. You want to do that? Yeah. So, uh, so what investigative skill do you want to try to use? So I, I imagine that I I have to like physically walk to wherever I'm going. I don't imagine that the space where I live and the space where I work are the same. Yeah, like I imagine you probably were able to find like a small space yes. somewhere close by. Correct. It's, so it's not it's a not, long walk. Right. It's not a long walk, but I have to go out and walk to there and get there. So I imagine myself walking outside, and as I'm walking, I I go over this premonition that I've had in my mind and try to use one of my investigative skills to kind of lock down or, or try to find a, uh, the alley, the location of where this happened. I think I'm going to use streetwise to be able to do that. All right. So yeah, you are kind of playing back the scene in your head and you keep seeing that poor boy coded in the substance that you created And it just plays over and over again. And each time you replay it, the look of horror that is etched on his metal face gets worse and worse. More piteous. Just awful. But the one time you replay it in your mind, you finally see the thing that you missed all of the other times that you replayed this memory. And it is a a sign that says the cantina. You know the cantina. The cantina is a bar where some of the more unsavory characters of gay Paris conduct their business. What brought you to the cantina the first time? Cantina was the meeting spot for contact to be able to procure the amount of mercury that I need to create the substance that goes into the applicator. It's not prevalent in France. It is usually found and mined in the Orient. And brought over here. So, and usually handled by you know, either companies or higher and people. So, really, this was a unsavory contact. And so, I met my contact there at the cantina and discussed what trade could be set up for me to obtain the amount of mercury that I would need. You've been to the cantina a few times, and every time, there's a filth that you can never seem to wash off, and it gets a little bit thicker on your skin each visit you make to that bar, and it's not anything that anyone would notice, it's just something you feel, a sliminess that covers you. But you know what alleyway 
that boy was in. I know that the cantina was really the the place where I started down the dark path of pushing all my chips in on this. It does seem quite appropriate that that would be where this is happening. It's taking you home. I think I'm going to uh, change directions from where I'm going right now and move over towards that alleyway to try to see what I can see. All right. It is... We're going to say June 26th. So not quite a full three months. So it's pretty warm. And there's a hum in the air. Almost like radio static. Of all of these new electric lights that line the street. So it is not... You feel... Safe. Maybe safe adjacent. As you begin to walk towards the cantina. And as you get closer and closer, that buzz kind of intensifies. And you were certain that it was just the hum of electric lights. But now it's sounding more and more like radio static, and it's getting louder, and it's getting louder. And you think that it's weird. You can almost hear music playing. Deep hidden within this static. You continue to get closer. And again, you hear every now and then the static breaks. And sometimes you think you might hear voices talking. And then sometimes you think you hear songs. Okay. And then at one point, as you are maybe a block or two from the alley that the cantina is in, you hear a voice cut through the static that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank you to Sean for playing Fear Itself with me. Thank you to Robin D. Laws and Pelgrane Press for such a great game. Thank you also to Pelgrane Press for the review copy of The Yellow King. We'll be diving into that game very soon. Finally, thank you to you for listening. Our theme song for This Will Make Sense Soon is Wasted Wonderland by Nicholas Gasparini. Check out all of Nicholas's incredible spooky piano music at thedarkpiano.com. Join us on February 13th for part two of You're Just So Hungry. Until then, remember that you are strong, you are beautiful, and you are not alone.